Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Shashank Joshi, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we give you a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Last year, it looked as though India had escaped the worst of the pandemic. Those hopes came crashing down in the spring. Our correspondent in New Delhi gives us a personal reflection on the health crisis now engulfing the country. And museums have suffered in the pandemic. But British museums, which reopen today, are in especially bad shape. With government funding drying up, they have to find new ways to survive. First up, though. Pharmaceutical companies could provide nearly 11 billion COVID vaccine doses this year. But the vaccines can't come quickly enough. In the United Kingdom, a quickly spreading variant that was first detected in India is worrying health officials. We believe this variant is more transmissible than the previous one. It could threaten the country's planned lifting of all COVID restrictions by June. Meanwhile, indoor gatherings in homes and restaurants are allowed to resume today. The UK's vaccinated much of its population at lightning speed. So following advice from the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, we will accelerate remaining second doses to the over 50s and those clinically vulnerable. But the prospect of variants like these is prompting it to order even more doses for booster jabs in the autumn. Meanwhile, America has even begun vaccinating teenagers. Yet rich countries have shared relatively few doses with poor and middle-income ones. And every new case is an opportunity for a more infectious and vaccine-resistant variant to emerge. Only 0.3% of vaccine supply is going to low-income countries. Trickle-down vaccination is not an effective strategy for fighting a deadly respiratory virus. Unless global supply keeps pace with what could become an insatiable vaccine demand in rich countries, it could be a long while before vaccines filter down to everyone else. There's lots of things that could stop rich countries from donating vaccine supplies. Natasha Loder is The Economist's health policy editor. We're going to need booster shops. That's one issue. Another is variants might mean that you would need to either use that vaccine supply to create variant vaccines or give booster shots. And then there's the issue of if rich countries want to vaccinate children and infants. If they do that, that's going to delay their surplus date by a couple of months. Natasha, earlier this month, President Joe Biden said America was willing to support the lifting of protections for vaccine IP, intellectual property, to boost global supply. How would that work and will it actually boost supply? Well, the idea is to wave IP around COVID-19 vaccines with a deal that's done at the World Trade Organization. 
countries could make vaccines, they could export them or import them without having the permission of the patent holder. And the idea is that there are lots of companies around the world who can make vaccines that aren't making vaccines. Would it work? In the long term, yes, it probably would. But the issue really we're facing right now is a short-term one about production and supply. So in the short term, it's not going to help very much at all. Why would it take so long to have an impact? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, you have to negotiate the waiver. Then countries may need to amend their domestic legislation. And then you need to do something called technology transfer. And vaccines are not like small molecule drugs where you just have the formula and you can kind of bash out a copy easily. Vaccines are really complicated. There's a lot of knowledge that's not encoded in the actual patent. It's sort of know-how and maybe seed stock and tacit knowledge, you know, stuff you pick up while you're doing it. All the major pharma companies have been doing a lot of tech transfer And, you know, they're telling us, look, it takes six to eight months. And all the people who are doing this are fully involved in doing tech transfer. And they feel they're as stretched as they can. So, Natasha, you've spoken to the technology. What about all the other stuff that goes into a supply chain for a vaccine? Is that working smoothly? Is that there? No, this is the big issue that we're getting distracted from. And I think that we need to focus on much more. Those who've been paying attention will have noticed that we've started to have serious supply chain issues already. We've seen two lines producing the Novavax vaccine, one in India, one in the UK, have serious problems. There's been an AstraZeneca line in India at the Serum Institute also that almost came to a halt as well. And this should really worry us because what it's telling us is that all that vaccine that we hope to produce towards the end of this year might not happen. And that's going to be a really big deal. So given all those constraints, how do we ramp up production now? Well, one of the most urgent things we need to do is to sort out export restrictions on all of the raw materials and ingredients that are slowing the supply chains and gumming them up around the world and causing pharmaceutical firms also to stockpile things that they need and other people need. One big source of that is America's Defense Production Act, which was imposed to assist the US in producing vaccine. They've done very well with the Defense Production Act. It's helped them take control of their own vaccine production chain, but it's causing problems around the world. You know, the US for example, when they make the Pfizer vaccine, they rely on inputs from 19 countries. Now, if each of those countries had a Defence Production Act, you know, sat on stuff and said, well, we want to see if we need this stuff first before we export it, then the US would have a problem. And But the US is a big, powerful country. It gets to do what it likes. Now it's produced a lot of vaccine. It needs to take a more global view of where all this stuff is going. And would an expansion of vaccine supply help India, which is in the middle of a really bad phase in its epidemic? No, not at the moment. It wouldn't. The time to expand would have been some time ago. And this gets back to the problem of the long lead times for making vaccines. For all the countries that have brought their recent waves under control and which are vaccinating, it's almost all been due to lockdown rather than vaccines. And that's simply because... You know, even if you've got the vaccines to hand, it's hard to move faster than infections when you're on the upswing of an outbreak. It's just you can't vaccinate fast enough. 
Natasha, you'll be on one of our sister podcasts, The Jab, discussing the true global death toll of COVID, our cover package this week. What have our data team discovered? Well, this has been really interesting. What they've been looking at is excess deaths. They've been modelling it quite cleverly. And what they found is that there is a huge number of excess deaths in middle-income countries around the world that were just not being counted. There is also excess death in low-income countries across Africa as well. But the big undercount is definitely coming from places like Latin America and Asia, of course. India's undercounting massively. Natasha, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Shashank. India is suffering from a catastrophic second wave of COVID-19. About 270,000 people have now died, according to the official count, but the true figure is likely to be much higher than that. Just four months ago, the country seemed to have a handle on the virus. Spirits were high as schools reopened, and the national cricket team beat their fierce rivals, Australia. In January, Prime Minister Narendra Modi boasted that India had controlled the spread of the virus and improved our health infrastructure. Now there are nearly 300,000 new cases a day. Brazil, second on the list, is recording just 60,000. And the toll has been devastating. The way that I've been living in Delhi is strangely blind. Alex Trevelli is The Economist's India correspondent, and he's been writing about his experiences during the outbreak. The picture I'd like to paint is kind of a picture without a picture. Because what's happening, you know, what's really crushing in on all sides is this just intense, chaotic, and almost universal crush of disease. People suffering from the illness, people in some cases dying, and in great, great numbers, people who are either falling ill, afraid of falling ill, and more than anything else, watching friends and loved ones who are struggling for life or losing it. And that's most of our mental reality. I was calling an elderly friend, a very dear friend, less than a week ago, and I was afraid to talk to him because I knew that his sister was infected. I believed that he was not. He wasn't when I last heard, but you never know these days. I was afraid for his sister because she's quite frail and I just couldn't picture her weathering a cytokine storm. But I had to know and he was able to tell me she's doing better. She's out of hospital. And then he mentioned, as if it were an afterthought, I know it wasn't, that his son, his son is my age and I've known him for 20 years, is ill. He's not doing so well. But you know, I'm in my 40s and so is that guy and that's supposed to mean that he's all right. And within three days, the friend my age is in need of a home oxygenator. As soon as I've come to know that, 12 hours later, he's going to the hospital. Home oxygenation wasn't enough. His fever is up and down. His oxygen levels are up and down. He's not really following any of the scripts that we know at this point. It's terrifying. This is an experience that a lot of people in the world have had in the past year. But I tell you, in Delhi, right now, everybody is having it all the time. And I'm not just in Delhi. I'm talking to friends all over the country. A lot of them seem to be not home in the big cities where they're working. They've gone back to the smaller towns where their parents are, usually because the parents are sick, need someone to shepherd them through a crumbling and chaotic hospital situation, need someone with some clout or some money 
to buy black market oxygen or whatever is needed. You pay more and more attention to those people closest to you, hanging on to them. It seems like the inevitable way. The numbers are something that we're all watching kind of obsessively. I have a father-in-law who's sending me lists of WhatsApp statistics the same way as was done a year ago when India, like the rest of the world, went into its big pandemic lockdown. The difference is that now the disaster that we all dreaded a year ago has actually come home. And it makes everything that happened in the past year look like play acting. COVID in India is out of control. India is experiencing the world's worst coronavirus outbreak. An assembly line of death and misery on an insurmountable scale. Now that's probably a more intense effect in India than in countries like the US or the UK, which did see large-ish parts of their population infected and horrific death tolls. India, by contrast, was almost missed by those earlier waves of the pandemic. So there's a mystery that never really quite got answered. No one in India was eager to answer the mystery. The mystery was, why didn't Indians suffer more last year? And Westerners, frankly, weren't very interested in answering the question either. To talk about it too directly, I think, risked making you look like a COVID denialist. And of course, the Indian government had no interest in it because they didn't want to acknowledge the good luck that they'd been dealt. Well, whatever the reason is, and maybe someday, years from now, epidemiologists will be able to explain it, but that good luck ran out. And it ran out so abruptly that we're living in a, with a, a sense of unreality. One thing that's hard to understand from where we sit right now is just how good we, and I mean really everybody in India, thought that we had it in the start of this year. Talking January, February, every business was open. I live next to a popular overpriced market in the center of Delhi, and it was just rammed every day. The prime minister, his right-hand man, were seen addressing rallies every night. At the same time, a great big Hindu festival, the Kumbh Mela, was going on in another part of India. And that's always a scene of just throngs pouring all over one another, trying to get a short dip in the Ganges River. And in retrospect, those are very striking. You don't see a news account now that doesn't mention the West Bengal rallies or the Kumbh Mela. And the implication is always what fools our political leadership were to lead us into that. The same time that those rallies and that festival were happening, the number of infections was going up at a rate that we've just never seen anywhere in the world. Total infections counted was tripling every day. There was a convexity emerging nationwide that I didn't notice until it was well underway and too late. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? 
Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Lately, museums around the world have been missing a key component, visitors. But in addition to indoor gatherings and indoor dining, culture lovers in Britain today will be able to head indoors to their favourite galleries and museums for the first time since Christmas. Yet unlike museums in other countries, the way British museums are funded means that the struggle to stay open is far from over. It's been a horrible time for museums all over the world, but particularly in Britain. British museums had come to rely on revenue from visitors. Take away the visitors and you've got a huge hole in the budget. Fiametta Rocco is a senior editor and The Economist's culture correspondent. It's leaving museums really scrambling to try and piece together makeshift plans to keep the doors open to a degree that we aren't really seeing in other countries. Why is that? What, what is it that sets British museums apart? Well, in Germany and France, say, museums exist almost entirely on public funding that's parceled out by the government. In America, museums rely hugely on philanthropy and they get a lot of tax breaks for it. For example, if you want to be a trustee of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, you have to be ready to donate at least $25 million in art or cash, according to a former director, and there is no shortage of people waiting for a chair at the table. But in the UK, we have a mixed system. In the past 20 years, the British government has been reducing state support for culture and encouraging museums to become more self-reliant. National museums are mostly free, but they put on exhibitions which they sell expensive tickets, expensive catalogues. They have restaurants, they have cafes, they have shops, they have conference facilities, and they have a huge business after hours for private parties and galleries, all of which helped bring in cash. What about the sort of rescue funding for the arts that we've seen in Britain and other countries? Well, other countries have been incredibly generous, Germany and France in particular. British government hasn't been willing to do much to make up the shortfall for the museums. In July 2020, Announcing the launch of a £1.57 billion cultural recovery fund, Oliver Dowd and the Culture Secretary boasted the government is here for culture and we have worked round the clock to get this record investment out to the front line. Prime Minister Chancellor and I, all of us, want to ensure not only does the sector survive, it thrives. But away from the cameras, at the same time, he was writing to museum directors, urging them to take as commercially minded an approach as possible, pursuing every opportunity to maximise alternative sources of income. If they didn't, he warned, I will not be in a position to make the case for any further financial support for the sector. So where's the money coming from then that's allowing British museums to keep their doors open? Well, we've seen some slightly unorthodox things. To get by, Small regional institutions in Manchester and Birmingham, for example, are being very flexible about opening hours. You'll be able to go at night. But flexibility is harder for big London museums and it costs a lot to keep museums open. To plug the hole in its finances, the Royal Collections Trust, which looks after the Queen's artworks and official residences and oversees the visits to Buckingham Palace when it's open in the summer, was forced to take out a bank loan of £22 million from Coots, the Queen's Bank. 
it's highly unusual for a cultural institution to borrow commercially to cover operational losses. But that's what they had to do. The Tate's approach has been more slash and burn. They've cut staff and exhibitions. And for the foreseeable future, it will put on just half the number of shows it did in 2019. Fiametta, how much of this trend is reversed once lockdowns lift, people get vaccinated and, and start heading back to museums in their droves to gaze at oil paintings and dinosaur bones? Well, one big change will be that museums won't be able to pack in people as they used to. Visitors will have to book a slot before coming. There's not going to be any dropping in. The British Museum, for example, will admit only 2,000 people a day, compared with an average of 15,000 in happier times. The big London Museum's business model depended on crowds. In the short term, and maybe even beyond that, they're going to have to find other ways to survive. Fiametta, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.